Um, I do thank you for the opportunity and the privilege to uh, uh, share God's word with you. So I take it you're still at page 947 in your Bibles. And uh, our text this morning will be taken from Romans 12. If there's ever a time I needed strength, it's a time like this. I'm really weak. And my voice is gone from singing. <laughs> but yeah, I trust God will see us through, okay? Romans 12, page 947. I do notice a number of faces missing, and I'm aware some of them are it's, it's, it's due to ill health. And uh, we'll keep them in prayer. And I'll encourage you to, you know, keep on keeping them in prayer. Okay. So Romans 12. Well, you will know that uh, human history is divided into two eras. B.C. and A.D. B.C., as we know, stands for before Christ. And A.D. stands for Anno. Yes, Anno Domine. Thank you. Which is translated in the year of our Lord. Others have gone on to uh, you know, translate it as after the death of Christ. But there you are. History split into two. B.C., and A.D. And um, uh, non-Christian historians in this day and age, and archaeologists, by the way, uh, have started using another term to replace, other terms to replace these two, if you've noticed. B.C.E., which is before the common era to replace B.C., and C.E., which is the common era to replace A.D., but you see, these, uh, these terms do not change the fact that history is classified by what happened before Christ came into the world and what happened after. And so is the story of every Christian. There is what you were before you met Christ and there is what you have become since you met Christ. And the two parts of your story may closely resemble, especially when you are first converted to Christ. But the longer you're a Christian, the more evidence there should be of a transformed life. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, Paul says in Romans 12:1-2, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so here we have an appeal to offer one's entire self to God in light of what God has done. We have a warning not to conform to the pattern 
of the world which constantly threatens to undo us. And we have a command to live a transformed life as disciples of Jesus Christ. So we'll be spending the rest of our time together this morning with a a focus on verse 2, considering the basis, the means, and the goals of a transformed life. So now you see there's a a therefore at the beginning of of verse 1, chapter 12. If you back up to chapter 5, you will see another therefore. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Fast forward to chapter 8 at the latter end. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And they were therefore at the start in Romans 12, 1. And these are the three major, they're not the only, but they are the three major therefores in the book of Romans. And what Paul is saying here is that in view of everything I've said From the beginning, that is from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 11, I appeal to you. Well, what case then has Paul been making from chapter 1? All the while, he started off saying, you have a problem. The problem is you're a guilty sinner, you're a rebel, you're deserving of God's judgment. But he doesn't. Stop at the problem. It provides a solution. Righteousness by faith through Jesus Christ has been offered. This is what you were. This is what God has done. Now this is what you are. By grace through faith. He's been unpacking the masses of God all the while to this church in Rome. That God withheld his wrath from deserving sinners. That he gave his son to die for them. And he has declared them righteous by faith. And given them his life-giving spirit. Not to mention adopting them into his family and making them his children. And such is your lot and mine, if indeed you're in Christ. And so the reality is if, if you are a Christian... You are a recipient of his masses. And the more you contemplate them, the more you should be motivated to live out the Christian life. And this is the basis of the appeal. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, on this basis, the basis of what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ, But you notice, based on the basis, that God never emphasizes the what without explaining the why. I'll say that again. God never emphasizes the what before explaining the why. When he gives us commands, he gives us rationales for those commands, in other words. And if you read your Bible, you'll find that this is a consistent, a consistent um, or a constant pattern, especially in the, uh, in the letters of Paul. God explains the why before he places emphasis on the what. Not that uh, you're all royal enthusiasts, but uh, 
I wonder whether you remember the wedding of uh, Prince William and Katie, uh, Westminster Abbey. Uh, the Bible reading was taken from Romans 1, Romans 12, 1 to 2. This very passage. And the Bishop of London preached and urged the people to be disciplined, to be loving and caring, to be responsible and understanding. You know, just like Her Majesty the Queen. You see, but with all due respect, albeit you shouldn't have used the Queen as, you know, the prime example, but with all due respect, the priest or the preacher did not explain why. There's no basis for the moral exhortations he gave, other than maybe for people to be good and for us to have an orderly society. You know things along those lines, but there's no basis whatsoever. But in view of God's masses, because of what Christ has done, this is what you are to do, God says, and he goes on to explain everything else we've read, even through, uh, you know, down from uh, verse 3 and all the way, actually up uh, through, to, through to 13. This is the outflow, this is what's expected of one who has been born again, of the believer. Now I wonder what motivates you to come to church every Sunday morning. I wonder what motivated you to come to church this morning. I wonder whether you considered whether or not you should be uh, uh, here in time. Not that I'm having a dig, <laughs> you know, those who came late, but, you know, people have different issues and so on and so forth. But what motivated you to come to church this morning? What motivates you to attend prayer meetings or even Bible, or Bible studies? What drives you to participate in all the activities of church life, as it were. You see, there are people who attend. Attend just about every other church program. Every other church activity there is. But for the wrong reasons. They're fervent in service. They're faithful in what they do. Sometimes the motive is questionable. And without going into any particulars, let me just say this. If you're not driven by a strong sense of gratitude for what God has done for you through the saving work of Jesus Christ, nothing but idolatry is at the core of what motivates you to do what you do, even in the name of Jesus. Our worship ought to be motivated by what we know or what we remember about where God has redeemed us from. Until you see yourself as a miserable wretch, as a helpless sinner, albeit saved by the grace of God, you will never come to love and appreciate the grace and the mercy of God. In our BC, before we got saved, some of us would look forward to the weekend with great anticipation. You know, making plans well in advance of what you'll be doing on a Saturday night, for example. What clothes you'll be wearing, wearing for the nightclub, who you'll be talking to, and so on and so forth. And such is to be expected of, you know, 
a depraved mind, as Paul stated, though, way back in chapter 1, because this is what we were before we came to Christ. Our minds were depraved. We were rebels. And this is what's to be expected. Satisfaction and fulfillment for self. But I wonder whether as Christians, or if you ask yourself right now, that you would have the same or even a greater sense of anticipation and expectation when it comes to church and the things of God. Do not be conformed to this world. So what motivates us? What drives us? The basis for transformation. Do not be conformed to this world, he says. Friends, Christianity is a battleground. It's not a playground. The Christian has three enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And Paul presents the world here as a key threat, a key threat to our transformation. The world, the word world as used in this context here is not about the beauty and the, the arrangement, you know, the cosmos of uh, uh, what we see around us, but rather it's about the false value system of this God-ignoring, God-despising culture. It is satanic. Satan is known as the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4 and 4. We were dead in our transgressions and sins and in which we used to live when we followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, Ephesians 2. 1 John 5 says, that the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. It's under the influence of Satan. The devil is at work in and through the world system to get you to be in harmony with him. Parents, you know, always warn their children about the dangers of peer pressure. But as adults as well, Christian adults, we ought to be reminded all the time, every single day of the dangers. The dangers that the world poses. The world exerts pressure on the Christian to conform. And some Christians attempted to run away uh, from the world into a monastic life, which is one extreme, a form of escapism. And on the other extreme, you have those who... <laughs> Fit in the world, as it were. I was glad hearing, uh, uh, you know, as we were praying, and, uh, and, uh, and our brother mentioned something about God helping us not to be hypocrites. Who are one thing on a Sunday morning in church, and once a benediction is given, we exit with something else. Like chameleons changing their colors in the environment, you see. And that is what we call conformism, because we're conforming to the patterns of this world. Escapism, one extreme. Conformism, another extreme. 
But God says our relationship to the world is twofold. We are to reach out to the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are to care for the, uh, you know, for the natural world, for nature, everything that God has created. But at the same time, we are to be careful not to be contaminated by the world, by the value systems, the beliefs of the world. Do not be conformed to the world. I like the J.B. Phillips uh, translation, the paraphrase. Uh, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold, Phillips says. And you'll find that this theme occurs in all the four major sections of Scripture. In the law, in the prophets, in Jesus' teaching, and in the apostles' teaching. God says to his people Israel through Moses, you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes, Leviticus 18.3. You have not walked in my statutes, nor obeyed my rules, but have acted according to the rules of the nations that are around you. They were conforming, compromising at the time. This is Ezekiel 11 and 12. In Jesus' own words, when he spoke of the hypocrites and the pagans, he told his disciples in Matthew 6 and 8, Do not be like them. And of course, from the apostles, Apostle Paul's words, Do not be conformed to the standards of this world. In 1 John says, and James as well, that friendship with the world is enmity with God. So well then, let's take a brief look at some of the contemporary trends, the conventional thought, or the common word out there is the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. What dominates our thought patterns, our thought life in this contemporary age, in this society? What dangers do we face that we must resist? Generally speaking, one, pluralism. There's many of them, but I'll, I'll name four major ones. Pluralism, which asserts the coexistence of multiple truths and vehemently opposes the singularity and uniqueness of Christ. In other words, if I presented Jesus Christ out there to the world as the only True God and Saviour, the only way, the truth and the life. Don't be expected, I mean, don't be surprised if you're met with very opposition. If you're labelled all kinds of names, a bigot, or uh, you're intolerant, or that kind of thing. There's more than one truth, how dare you say there's only one truth. Pluralism. Number two, materialism. This is a, a, a preoccupation with material things which can smother our spiritual life. The contrary to that, our Lord taught contentment. I was listening to a few ladies chat, you know, at work and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, obviously, one of them had, you know, issues with the husband, and uh, 
Uh, she went on to say that, you know, each time she's stressed by the husband, her solution is one. She goes shopping. <laughs> she goes shopping. She goes buying clothes or shoes and things of that nature. You can't help but wonder the size of her wardrobe. But you see, materialism as a cure, materialism as something we should crave, and none of us is immune to these things, you see. Number three, relativism. This eliminates the existence of absolutes. There's nothing absolute, says relativism. Everything and anything is defined or determined relative to how I feel or what I believe or where I am or who I am or how I was raised. Relativism. You probably heard of the recent story of uh, Dr. David uh, McCarrath, a Christian, a Christian doctor who, during an abstract discussion, this is recent, by the way, during an abstract discussion with his manager, uh, he was sacked from the NHS after saying he would not call any six-foot-tall bearded man madam. He lost the case recently at, uh, in early October of this year, and the tribunal ruled this way. This was their ruling. Genesis 1.27 is an assault on human dignity. Just so you know, this is what, Gen what Genesis 1.27 says. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And this is the tribunal's ruling. An assault on human dignity. Because the doctor will not yield to the demands of this patient. Six feet tall, bearded, a man, and wants to be called madam. Relativism. Number four, narcissism. Has anyone heard of the Greek legend Narcissus? Yeah. Narcissus was this young man who was so obsessed with himself and oftentimes, I mean, pretty much every day he would, uh, you know, walk to uh, a nearby pond and uh, uh, would see his image in the reflection and, oh, love himself, how good looking he is. But one day he toppled fell into the pond. Hence, narcissism of that legend. Narcissus. So narcissism is an excessive love for oneself. Look around in churches, turn on, you know, so-called uh, quote-unquote Christian television and you'll see and hear a lot of this stuff. I've had a few people tell me before that you don't name names, but how do you help people out if you don't name names, if you don't identify the culprits with a view to reach out to them in love? God help us. You know, Timothy goes on to name, I mean, Paul, Hymenaeus and Phygelus, Alexander the Coppersmith, 
if you're listening to the likes of Joel Osteen, you're in danger of narcissism. Because that stuff is packaged like it's the truth, but it is not. It's perfect packaged with Jesus in it, but it is not Jesus. And here's the danger. Here's the gravity of it. The souls of men and women and children hinge on whether or not they listen to the truth. Their eternity is dependent on that. You see, narcissism, it's all about self. It's all about me. I am. I don't need to go outside of myself to find a powerful source. God was and he is and he is in me. Therefore, I am that I am. There's a lot more for us to resist. Forget the general wave, the tide of society. Much as it always screams loudly in our ears and it's right in our face, whether you're at the tube station or you, uh, you know, you're cutting a chrono crossing a square. The adverts are full of this stuff, you see. So how does a Christian respond? What does it evoke? What response does this evoke from you? Well, then what's the remedy? Transformation. The word transform translates uh, the word from which we get the term metamorphosis. If you remember your science, for example, it's the process of a caterpillar. This is one entity changing altogether into something else, but it's still the same entity. It's the process of a caterpillar transforming into a butterfly. It's a radical change from the inside out. And the same word is used only in uh, Matthew 17, 2 and in Mark 9, 2 for the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. When his divine glory shined through his human flesh. And this is the same word used here. in the transformation process that the Spirit applies and works through our lives as Christians. This is what God intended and this is what he wants for us. He doesn't want us to be pressured or to succumb to the pressure of fitting into the world, but the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is there. We have the Spirit of God to help us and to change us from the inside out. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So it's a fundamental transformation of character and conduct away from the standards of the world into the image of Christ himself. How? By the renewing of the mind. 
You cannot live, a, uh, you know, like a Christian if you don't think like a Christian. And you cannot think like a Christian if your mind is not being constantly renewed. The reality is that your mind, and my mind, needs constant renewing. Because there are issues from our old life, issues from our BC that we still struggle and griper with. They are deeply ingrained in our thinking and they will not disappear overnight. This is not a switch you flip, you know, flick on and off. It's a process. And so I'll ask a, a question, I'll get a bit personal. Or if you're to run a, a, you know, a personal spiritual audit, what would your findings be as to what you constantly feed into your mind? How do you manage your time? That's if you're not sleeping. What does your priority list look like? The year is coming to an end and 2020 is right door. What do you intend to populate your New Year resolution list? Would it be narcissistic? Or would it be Christ-centered? I was having a chat, uh, you know, with a lady the other day and I was impressed by, you know, uh, her zeal for God, her love for God, and she's, uh, she's taken up a course with Cornhill, you know, just to uh, better understand the Bible, interpret the Bible with a view to teach, to teach, you know, fellow women and children, and, and to enhance church life, as it were. But also, of course, to build herself up. Very impressive. One day a week with Cornhill. But, uh, she, you could tell from, from the conversation that her primary goal, because she kept saying this time and again, that she wants to be like Jesus. Her and her husband want to be like Jesus. When they pray, those are the lines they follow. Christ-likeness. Being like Jesus. Of course we do have our other needs, physical and also, but... Uh, what is the dominant theme or pattern of our prayer? Is it narcissistic? Christ-centered? Friends, the mind is the engine for spirituality. The mind is a great organ that the Lord has given us. And what you feed it with will determine how you think and behave. The music you listen to, the books and magazines you read, the TV channels and movies that you watch, the pleasures you enjoy and the places you attend. I'm not saying don't have fun at all. All I'm saying is be very careful. Be discerning. The world is not a friend trying to help you. Not at all. It's not a friend trying to help you have a good time. But it's an enemy trying to get you to conform to its pattern. 
So you see, Paul doesn't tell us here how the mind is renewed, but we know and we can deduce from elsewhere in Scripture, even in his writings, that it is by combination of the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Some have attempted to divorce the two, but these two are inseparable. The Word of God and the Spirit of God. You read and think. You exercise your mind. God has given you a precious mind with a capacity to take in loads of information over time and process it. Stretch it. Stretch it by observation, by reading, by studying and meditating on the Word of God and other godly literature. I'd like to encourage you to take up interest in church history, for example. We have a rich history of the church, you see, over 2,000 years ago. And there's a long line of those that have gone before us, who are faced with the same challenges as we are. You see, there's nothing new under the sun. And we can draw inspiration and encouragement from them in how they tackled their challenges, in how they loved the Lord, in how they endured. And truth be known, the world is not going to get any better. That's delusional. It's only going to get worse. Evil is only going to multiply. And there will come a time when we'll have to endure violence. I mean, we're pretty much comfortable, especially here in, our, in the West with our liberties, but time and again we See them being infringed upon, you see. But what about our children? What about the younger generation? What about those that are unborn and coming up? What about the future generations? How do we prepare them for what's coming? Are we going to be passive? Do we prepare them by being passive about our Christian lives? Or by being active? by constantly using the engine of our spirituality to grasp the heights and the depths. Interesting Paul's prayer to the Ephesian church. I pray that the eyes of your understanding may be opened, that you may see, that you may comprehend the heights and the depths, the breadth and widths of the riches of your inheritance in Christ Jesus. There's so much riches in here that even if I had 10,000 lives, I would not be able to exhaust them. But you see, we've only got one life. What do we do with it? We make the most of it? Engage with God in his word. God has spoken through his word. And God speaks through his word and God will speak through his word. And the spirit will illuminate and enlighten and elucidate God's words to your mind. Link up with like-minded people. Maybe groups of twos or threes. 
discuss the Bible together, share challenges. Make use of the programs that, you know, the church has put in place for uh, your spiritual uh, development. Engage with God privately in your word. Be in, in, in his word. Be determined and intentional and disciplined about reading and studying and meditating on his word. There's a, uh, uh, a kind of intellectual laziness among some Christians, but this shouldn't be. Have you ever wondered why God gave us his word in literature. That we're to understand it through reading. Maybe you'll object, but what, what about the blind? But yes, I mean, the exception is not the rule. And we thank God for technology in this day and age. There's audio Bibles. There's no way you can scut around it, you see. There's no excuse. What's the basis for transformation? What God has done for us. What's the means of transformation? Renewing our minds. And what's the goal for transformation? To discern and desire the will of God. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I see some of us are trying to discern God's will, but you cannot make up your mind until you change your mind. And when you change the way you think by the Spirit of God and the Word of God, you will be able to test and approve what the will of God is. That it is good, that it is acceptable, and it's perfect. This text, no way, tells us that there's three kinds of God's will, as it were, good, acceptable, and perfect. No. These terms don't teach us that, but rather, that God has one will, and it is good. And it is acceptable. And it is perfect. Without going into issues to do with God's will. God's will is good. It is good by nature. And it is good in its ways. It is good in its results. And if you do God's will, it is good even when it looks bad. Or feels bad. What makes it good? It's because it's God's will. And God is good. You see. God's will is acceptable. That is, it is acceptable to God. Not to me and to you, but it's acceptable to God. It may be acceptable to me and to you. Not independently, but mainly by virtue of the fact that we are one with Christ, you see. So it's the person with a renewed mind that willingly and gladly offers themselves as a living sacrifice. See so what it says in verse 1, as we conclude.
a living sacrifice. This is dying to self, even in matters of the will of God. Your mind has to be renewed to get to a point that says, Lord, I don't like this, but if it pleases you, so I will do it, so be it. Lord, this is painful and uncomfortable, but nonetheless your will be done. God's will is perfect. And there's nothing better than knowing and doing the will of God. There you have a clear conscience. So we are to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. Willingly and gladly, not ignorantly, like, uh, you know, Old Testament animals, which were brought to the slaughter, of course were killed in their ignorance, and then offered as a sacrifice. No, but we come to God willingly and intelligently as living sacrifices, because one has died in our stead, the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God, who was given to take away the sins of the world. So friends, the heart of the matter is the Word of God and the Spirit of God changing the way we think from within. This is God's desire for Christian discipleship. As disciples, this is how we relate to our Master, our Lord Jesus Christ. Be transformed by the renewing of, the, of your mind. As we said before, you could do a lot of godly things on the surface, but your motive is rather selfish. It's possible to avoid most worldly customs and still be proud, covetous, selfish, stubborn and arrogant. There's a description for one the likes of that. Paul says it clearly in Romans 1 and 2. A moralist. But moralism without Christ is nothing. You see, we do because Christ, because of what Christ has done for us. So only when the Word of God and the Spirit of God renews, re-educates and redirects our mind can we be truly transformed. So remember your BC, what you are before you came to Christ. And remember your AD what you are and who you are in Christ Jesus. And be intentional. Be determined to renew your mind every day. Because if you don't, it will be renewed in a different way. Satan has his own way of renewing the mind. Let us pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we 
We bless you, O oh Lord. We thank you for the treasures that we find in your word. We thank you for the stark reminder you've given us this morning about the need to be transformed. You not only stopped at justifying us, Lord, but your will is to sanctify us as well. In fact, you say in your word that uh, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. We thank you for the gift of your spirit, who is a guarantee, a seal for our inheritance. We thank you that is mightily at work in us, molding and shaping us, making us more like Jesus. We pray that in our lives, O oh God, in every situation we encounter, in our joys and in our sorrows, in our difficulties and our tribulations, Lord, may we be reminded that your will is good and perfect and acceptable and that you are at work in us, that indeed all things work out together for our good, us whom you have called through Christ Jesus. Lord, we pray as this church, Lord, uh, that we may stretch our minds to explore the wonders, the wonders of your masses and the triumphs of your grace. But like Charles Wesley in the hymn we sang, we may see the depths from which we've been redeemed and respond in wonder, gratitude and thanksgiving. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's love? Lord, we love you, but we love because you first loved us. And so help us to reach out in love to this world with the truth of your saving gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.